Now it's time for News with My Dad, a show where we talk about the news with my dad. And on the telephone, the star of our show playing the role of my dad is in fact my dad, Joe Smith. Bob, how you doing? <laughs> well, I'm not looking forward to the Pineapple Express, but having been silent for a week, I got so much stuff. Yeah, I am going to attempt to get a word in edgewise. It may require using the dials in the studio to make that happen. But, Pop, this is a show we talk about the news. We try to talk about the important stuff. Sometimes we talk about the unimportant stuff. When it's unimportant, we try to say so. We take turns. Dad typically takes the first turn. Pop, do you have a shout-out? I have shout-outs. Plural. First, I want a shout-out for Jim Mackingvale the proprietor of Gallery Furniture Store in Houston, who opened his store as a shelter to folks who were without heat and without water because he had a, a good good generator and just invited people to come in and sleep on his mattress. He's known as Mattress Max. And, and he invited folks to just come in and live. He had over 300 overnighters for several nights addressing the huge environmental disaster in Texas. An absolutely wonderful thing. I want to shout out for the leader of Canada, Trudeau, who had a comment about Preservision. He noted that the ads that Preservision says pharmacies, the one most recommended by pharmacies, and he said, you should ask your pharmacy if $1,000 per year is right for you, good for you. And then I want to shout out for Martin Rios, who is an employee at the Port of Portland, at, at the Portland Airport, who came upon a Latino family that had, been, had spent their night in the airport because they had started out for Texas thinking that they were en route to Portland, Maine, and their their travel agent had screwed up and sent them to Portland, Oregon, and they had not enough money to do anything about it, and he came up with money out of his own pocket to help them get to Portland, Maine. Martin Rios, you are a wonderful human being. Well, Dad, where do you want to start? You want to start. Well, I want. I want, with, I want to me finishing my sentence, or to go ahead. I want to acknowledge the passing of Joyce Nelson, who was a, a wonderful leader of the indigenous indigenous population. Wonderful, and I think we need to acknowledge the passing of Rush Limbaugh. And then the less said about that, the better. And I'd like to start with COVID, catching up on what's happening because. Today we're going to pass one half billion people. 500,000 deaths, we are just about that. That doesn't count the increase in the death count that is not fully counted towards COVID. And by that I mean probably the count is higher. Yes, starting, starting with a whole bunch of deaths in New York nursing homes, which are putting Governor Cuomo's tail in a crack. I, I'm not familiar with that expression. I don't know if Sam is. If Sam, are you familiar with that expression? 
Sam is not familiar with that expression either. Is that a new one, Dad, or is that a, a old one? No, that's not a new one. That's, a old, that's an old one. All right. Uh, Merrick Garland's confirmation hearing to become attorney general has started. It was delayed while Democrats and Republicans were struggling to reach a power-sharing agreement. Remember, of course, in 2016, Republicans blocked Garland's hearings to become a Supreme Court justice after the death of Antonin Scalia, the stolen Supreme Court seat. By this time around, Garland has received more bipartisan support, been endorsed by liberal racial justice groups as well as police organizations. He was a judge for the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, viewed as a centrist, supervised the Justice Department's investigation of Oklahoma City bombings, led to the convictions of white nationalists Timothy McVeigh and Terry Nichols. Interestingly, it shouldn't have taken us 25 years to realize that right-wing white nationalist terrorism was a thing. In 1995, they bombed a federal building, and a bunch of people died. His knowledge of far-right extremism will be key as he'll lead the investigation in the January 6th Capitol assault. More than 200 people have already been caught and charged in that complex case. Democrats will likely question Garland on how his criminal justice views align with Biden's commitment to racial justice. In a 2016 report, the ACLU noted Garland's decisions demonstrate a pro-prosecution perspective. Garland expected to work and begin that work as Attorney General by mid-March, and by that I mean he is expected to be confirmed. Dad, reflections on Merrick Garland. Is this, why do you think he was appointed? Do you think that a portion of the rationale for being appointed was it just felt like a scar within the democratic party big d big p uh, community that it felt like a loss that that history just couldn't be left that way they needed to resolve it somehow how do you take it i uh, i really think it was because biden decided he was the best person for the job but because of his his background both both in law enforcement and on the bench, and uh, and his uh, his balanced political views, uh, I, uh, I I just think that's the reason. And I and I assume, by the way, this means you have vetoed my wanting to start. I'm with following politics. the show document. Start with politics. I'm just I'm just following the show document. I'm just doing what I'm told. We get this document that people put lots of work into. So I'm just following the show document. If if we have, then you should then you should not ask me for where I want to start. What else do you want to talk about, COVID, Dad? Well, I think I think it's worth mentioning when we're talking about COVID that the NIH head, that's the National Institute of Health head, Francis Collins, has said that he believes the Republicans' politicization of masks has resulted in his his quote tens of thousands of unnecessary deaths, which is I think pretty 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 awful. Study shows that teens are losing sleep because they're not going to school. You'd think they'd sleep more, but actually they're sleeping less. The uh, Washington is okaying inside dining if uh, you can show measuring CO2s. CO2 concentration is down because of the steps you've taken. The CDC is urging that schools open and kindergarten is down, enrollment is down about 16%. And uh, PPS, public, uh, Portland Public School, doing a survey asking people, would you like your kids to be coming to elementary school for two hours a day? That's interesting. And a study that the 
Oxford study of AstraZeneca says that the AstraZeneca vaccine is okay for six-year-olds. And if you are 70 years or older, you are now eligible for the vaccine. You can sign up. And I was... My first vaccine appointment was canceled by the weather, but I got it two days later. And I've got to say, it was a totally nice experience. The The people were so friendly. The people who were participating, managing the lines and, and telling you where to go and telling you what to do. The spirit was just so good. It was really, really impressive. And I encourage folks to sign up and get your vax. What do you got next? I have a couple of factoids I like to drop in, and then there's just a bunch of politics. I think we just and go back and follow up on uh, on the Garland thing, but I, uh, a factoid that I want to share. There were eight Southern colonels in the United States Army in 1860. Robert E. Lee was one of those eight colonels. Guess how many of those colonels turned traitor and defected canceling their oath when they became colonels. I, I cannot hazard a guess. Well, it was one. Hmm. Robert E. Lee, who is revered by so many Southerners, was the only colonel who turned traitor, which I think is a very interesting factoid. Another factoid I want to share, 84% of publicly traded stock is owned in America, is owned by the top 10%. And 17% of white people's wealth is in stocks. Only 3% of African Americans and Hispanic Americans are in stock. That's a, that's a chilling, chilling factoid. Uh, what are your thoughts on... Uh, on Merrick Garland. I'll go back to the question I asked previously. Upon Merrick Garland as a good place to start in the general discussion of politics, and uh, and I would just restate, I think that Merrick Garland was has been nominated, although, although his name obviously became well-known because of the perfidious position taken by the Republicans to not even allow his his uh, nomination to be heard in a committee, let alone taken to a vote on the floor, but 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 I I don't think uh, I don't think Biden was trying to make a statement on that. I think Biden just saw him as the as the uh, best candidate he could come up with to run the Department of Justice, particularly when he has said he wants the Department of Justice to go back to being the Department of Justice and not the private law firm for the president of the United States. And it could well be, of course, that the same vetting process that led to his judicial appointment ends up asking and answering many of the same questions when one that one asks and answers when one is looking for a new attorney general. And, you know, you seem like the best for one job. You might seem like the best for the other job as well. That his, his, pre his, his prepared testimony was released Saturday and uh, he he's going he's going after the right things according to his prepared testimony. 
that Donald Trump's going to give his first major address since leaving the presidency. He's going to do that at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference in Orlando. Are you going to go? Are you going to visit Orlando, risk COVID, spend time in Florida so that you can see the former president? I, I, I gave a lot of thought to it, and finally I decided to pass. Decided you'd stay home. Partly, partly because I was not invited. And, and it is kind of an invitation-only thing. Uh, they they have 90 speakers planned, 90 of them, not a single one who has been in any way critical of DDT, uh, several who have been slavishly complimentary of DDT, and uh, Mike Pence was invited and said no, which I think is very interesting. And DDT is, is, the story is that when he comes on Sunday, which is the last day of the conference, the conference starts on Thursday, that he is going to declare himself as the, as the king of the party and expect everybody to kiss his ring and maybe other parts of his anatomy. A Suffolk University USA Today poll found that 46% of Republicans said they would abandon the Republican Party and join the Trump Party if the former president decided to create one. Only 27% say that they would stay with the Republican Party. The remainder would be undecided. Donald Trump, you don't think, would start a new party, do you, Pop? I don't think he's liable to start a new party, but there there's some serious discussion of that. Excuse me, Evan McMillan... Uh, put together a Zoom meeting of something like 120 uh, Republican leaders for what he called Stand Up Republic to discuss coming up with a third way. And there are, is some serious discussion. Uh, the uh, There's no reason for DDT to break away from the Republican Party because state Republican parties all over the country are in his thrall and they are condemning anybody, they're condemning all of the folks who in the House voted for impeachment or in the Senate voted to convict. And and they are purging anybody that is not a, a DDT trumpeter. So the likelihood of his starting a new party is very small, but the likelihood of maybe some others starting a part, new party might be more significant. What do you think? Well, we got a text in that distracted me. My, uh, but, but I think that it's, uh, if Donald Trump were an ideologue, if he had a set of viewpoints, put another way, if he had an objective or a sector of objectives that went beyond himself, and I don't mean his ambitions are small, his ambitions are large, but the ambitions, his ambitions have to include the name Trump in them. And it, 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 it has nothing to do with any ideology. And if those things were different, then one could imagine that I need to start the Trump party. It's almost funny that I, you know, the fact that we're calling it a Trump party suggests something. The other is if it looked like the Republican Party were dragging down Trump, right? If he were Charles de Gaulle of France and his popularity was that of a national hero, 
but the political party that had recruited him was somewhat an anvil around his neck, was something pulling him down that I could imagine, no, I'm going to start the De Gaulle party, and the De Gaulleists will beat any party. Neither of those circumstances are true in this case. Donald Trump is not a national hero. He is not, he is not super popular. He just lost a national election. If he runs again, he will lose another national election if enough people vote. And he doesn't have, he's not, he's not the ideologue who would create the Green Party or the, you know, he wouldn't, he wouldn't even create the build a wall and lock her up party because there isn't an objective outside himself that is so important for him to have live on beyond himself. So no, unless one of those dynamics were to change, I don't think he would do that either. Uh, He does plan to challenge Joe Biden's policies in his speech. He also plans to address the future of the Republican Party. Uh, Trump has not confirmed whether or not he would run for president in 2024. Of course, the conference has historically been a jumping off point for Republican presidential candidates, which means, Pop, that your note about Mike Pence is an interesting one. Uh, The theme of this year's CPAC is American Uncanceled. President's Republican critics have been invited to, excuse me, none of the president's critics have been invited to speak. Uh, Interesting interesting example of that, Nikki Haley, Nikki Haley, who opted out of supporting DDT the other day and then then wanted maybe to to, uh, get back in his graces and asked if she could come see him, and he said no, <laughs> which uh, underlines exactly what, what you are talking about. And What do you think, the, what, what's your over-under of what DDT will say about the likelihood of his being a candidate in 2024 in his Sunday speech? That's a good question. I have to imagine, so he's a showman, right? That's his, the essence is he likes to he views every day, and now that he doesn't have the daily news cycle in the same way, maybe every month, as a TV show where he is the hero and he has to win that TV show. He has to win that narrative. And I would say that the way he wins it is, of course, we'll see a lot of victimhood. On Democracy Nerd, we did a an interview with a guy who wrote, who wrote the book on political victimhood, its impact, its power, its strategy. There'll be a lot of that. And I, I have to think that what he'll say is, well, we'll see if blank, blank, if people don't fall in line, blank, blank, or if, if Joe Biden doesn't blank, blank, or if the Republicans aren't strong enough to blank, blank, maybe I'll have to run. My guess is, and maybe it's even my strong guess, is that he will offer a teaser. He won't want to blow his, you know, he won't want to blow someone out. So I don't think there's any chance of that. And I don't think there's any chance he rules it out. So I think what we're looking for I would call it rhetorical architecture, but even calling it scaffolding would be a compliment. Will be him looking for a chance to to tease. Let's just say it's a teaser, Pop. Don't you think it's going to be a teaser? I think it's got to be a teaser. Yeah, a teaser probably is the most likely. My over-under is about 50% that he might say he he is going to, which doesn't necessarily mean that he will, but but he, he will mention it in some way, to try to maintain his position in the spotlight, which we are giving him right now once again. Yeah, he's not the president now. We should probably change the subject. The uh, we, we got a text in, which is about HR one. It's about the importance, and I welcome uh, I would welcome even more follow up. That said, please address the importance to our democracy of passing 
before the People Act, H.R. 1 uh, or Senate Resolution 1. Uh, and that's Paul from Washington County. First of all, thank you, Paul, for listening, and thank you for the text. The text line here is 971-220-597. Well, I'll, I'll say, we talked about a democracy nerd, and I will say what I said then, which is it's the best piece of legislation I've ever seen. Right. In my since, since I've been around, I don't mean, you know, like the Civil Rights Act is important piece of legislation, but it, I wasn't around for the stuff that I've been tracking since I've been tracking stuff. It's the best piece of legislation. It's omnibus, anti-corruption, pro-democracy, voter access, campaign finance. I mean, it is like the stuff that gets me going. The the reason part of the reason this court sits much of the reason why we started the Democracy Nerd Show is because of that category of items. I mean, this is it's why we started the bus project. I mean, it's the it is it's the stuff I care about, man. And it also is and I'll, I'll quote Larry Lessig, who's been on the show, who had a great one of his TEDx talks, had a great line where he says, listen, my, my issue and he was talking about campaign finance specifically is not the most important issue. Your issue is the most important issue, whether it's health care or climate change or wealth disparities or civil rights or women's right to choose. Your issue is the most important issue. My issue is the first issue because we're not going to get to any of that stuff. We're not going to address rethinking transportation policy if we don't rethink how we pay for and conduct elections. And I believed him then and I believe him now. I think that the that if you track Martin Luther King Jr., recognize that the policy that he fought for was voting rights, recognizing that the power ultimately has to include the power at the ballot. And that means people have to have access to the ballot. To me, it is the essence of the thing that more importantly than any political party, more important than any political ideology must begin the idea that we're stronger together than we are apart, that we are here together to try to govern together, try to figure out how to make this work, that democracy itself has to be tended to rather than taken for granted. So, Paul, I think it's I think it's as important a bill as could possibly be introduced. Let me offer some cynicism. Well, first of all, let me pause there so I'm not only filibustering. Dad, would you like to pile on, push back anything you're tracking with respect to for the the For the People Act, which is HR one. Well, well, what what this does, what, what you're talking about, of course, is what what ought to be so obvious, so obvious, that ultimately, if you say we have a government of law, not of people, used to be laws are not of men, but now we can say of people. <laughs> Both the persons who are holding the levers of power, that is, the pe- people who have the right to say I and nay to legislation, who have the ability to offer legislation, who have the power to prevent legislation from becoming legislation or bringing it to the floor, hugely matters, and the folks who pull the strings of those individuals hugely matters and of course what you want to do is you want to cut any strings from those individuals so you can try to elect individuals who are going to be making their decisions not on who pulls their strings parentheses supports their campaigns with dollars closed paren 
but what they honestly believe is the best thing for their constituents and for their states and for their country. And that, that, that makes the way we elect people critical and, and very interesting. Just one example, the, the second-ranking Republican in the House of Representatives, Representative Scalise, on public uh, on national television yesterday refused, refused twice to acknowledge that Joe Biden actually won the election. He acknowledged that he was president, but he refused to say, yeah, he really did get the most votes. And, and why is that? Well, it's because of the strings that are attached to him. And to the the uh, this year is critical for that. Every 10 years is very critical because every 10 years you get a redistricting both of state legislatures and of the House of Repres the National House of Representatives. And and the the data for that apparently isn't going to be available until September, which is going to be a very interesting thing, especially in Oregon as to whether will there be a special session called to deal with that once the once the data is available, or will we leave it to the Secretary of State? Uh, I would be interested in, in your prediction on that one. Key provisions of H.R. 1 include voting rights. We've talked a lot about that on this program. Uh, election security, campaign finance reform, ethics, uh, statewood for District of Columbia, which is enormous. Uh, gerrymandering or gerrymandering, also enormous. Note that, and we'll talk maybe a little more about this after the break, although those local things I teased we'll want to get to, uh, the that right now Republicans will be conducting the con congressional redistricting in twice as many states as Republicans, excuse me, as Democrats will be. Republicans will be doing it twice as much as Democrats. They are controlling the line drawing to double the degree as Democrats. Also, the number of FEC commissioners, federal election commissioners that uh, that is somewhat happens I, I that's what it addresses that is the, essentially the list of what it aims to address and by the way just yesterday Her the heritage foundation came out with their facts about hr1 to be clear the heritage foundation is the right-wing think tank that has helped to remake American politics over the it's last not necessarily years. the place you would look for an honest analysis of anything. It is, and here it's key takeaways. But what I find interesting, right? Because I've said for a long time, right, that, that Donald Trump is not the head of the snake; he's a rattler, and that it, because that talking points that end up coming out of his face are things that got focus grouped elsewhere. Some of the the, the stuff that has to do with policy, uh, when and here's one of the places where it comes from: it's the Heritage Foundation. Here's the key takeaways. It would federalize and micromanage the election process. Okay. It would reverse decentralization of the American election process. By the way, decentralization of the American election process is what the Southerners were arguing ever since the Civil War and before. It's been at the root of the evil and the root of the debate in this country since the dawn of the country. It, it actually began in 1787. Or prior. 
It would implement nationwide the worst changes in election rules that occurred in 2020 and further damage or eliminate basic security protocols. All these people clamoring to vote. All these people clamoring to vote who aren't allowed to vote. They will let them vote. Yeah, that's the Heritage Foundation take. Uh, we will be following it. I will offer you my cynical view. My cynical, it's not just my cynical view. I'll, I'll give another optimistic view. I desperately and dearly hope there might be some Republicans who follow the law. It is very hard for me to imagine there being even the seven Republicans who voted to impeach Trump in the Senate. Hard to imagine even those seven voting for H.R. 1. And it's hard for me to even imagine one. So far, when I, I interviewed Sarbanes, the architect of the bill. And I think that's still online. I think we got that interview still online. And uh, and I asked if there were any, and at that point there were none. He said there were some, you know, maybe casual interest in the in, or secret interest within the halls of Congress amongst Republicans, but it, it's not a bipartisan bill at this point. And that is not because it's a bad bill. It's because the essence of the Republican Party, unfortunately, a, a party that was born of trying to expand the franchise born of trying to expand the American experience has now become anti-access, anti-ethics reform, anti-sensible district line drawing rules. Uh, yeah, there's something like a hundred bills have been introduced in state legislatures, all aimed at making it harder to vote. We got through the weather. The House. Half the House kept its power. Half the House lost its power. It felt like a bicameral legislative body. What is some, What are some of your reflections after the power loss? All, all, all of the House lost it for a little while. And uh, we just, my half of the House came, came back on sooner than your half. The, it, is, it is an oddity. It is an oddity that in that single building, with two separate residences, to be clear, but in that single building, the they are represented by, serviced by two different power grids. You're PGE, is that the deal? No, I'm people. We're we're, we're, people, we're public power, Pacific power. Okay, you're, you're just just you're, a different you're grid. Just, yeah, you're you're just on a different transformer. And we were seeing the night the power went out, just like so many were going. And we should talk a little about the weather review because holy mackerel, there's still 38,000 people, 38,000 customers. One question I have is customer mean bill payer or does customer mean human being in household? It, it, mean, it means bill payer, I'm quite sure. So, so then it's north of 50,000 human beings without power still from all those power lines going down. And it also raises Texas, where the New York Times article showed that somebody paying close to seventeen thousand dollars, they left the they left their lights on, their lights stayed on, didn't go out, and now they have a seventeen thousand dollar electric bill because they've privatized their electricity. They're buying and selling sort of like the Enron days, very much like the Enron days, and the private market for electricity was jacking up the price so much that somebody now has a seventeen thousand dollar power bill. Holy mackerel! Luckily, that didn't happen here, but it still does raise questions. And there now is DSA, among others, it, it, it is raising questions around how well the power grid is being maintained. If privatization, 
is the way if if investor-owned utilities, uh, IOUs as they're called, let's just say private utilities, are in fact the better choice. Time was the biggest political debate in Oregon was about public power. That was the biggest fight. And in most big cities, the private power interests won. In some smaller towns, the public power folks won. It's not clear to me that the, well, it is clear that we know that in the rolling brownouts of California and elsewhere, that public power utilities tend to do better and lose, got lost their power less often than the private power. Uh, but I'm wondering if there's, if you, if you had any reflections, Dad, from the snow and ice, did you get out to it? You didn't do any snowshoeing. Didn't do any snowshoeing. As a matter of fact, partly because of COVID having given me the habit of staying indoors, it made it that much easier to stay indoors. Uh, the, uh, the the main thing I got out for was on Tuesday to go and get my vaccination and the uh, driving very carefully and parking next to a snowbank. As a matter of fact, I parked facing the wrong direction on the street because I wanted to make sure I was pointing downhill when it came time to get out. But uh, the what I am seeing is this this could be looked upon as a huge opportunity to to help people recognize that public power has been so much more successful in dealing with this kind of problem than private power. And why is that? Because public power tends to look as most important. The ultimate purpose is providing power, whereas private power has as its ultimate purpose paying for what have increasingly become the outlandish salaries and perks of management and paying dividends for their stockholders rather than providing power. And if you have those two motives are going to produce some very, very different things. But but there is a huge, such a huge opportunity to say, hey, look, if you're if you're looking at what really is endangering the welfare of the citizens of the United States, of the occupants, let's say the occupants of the United States, what is really the most most threatening, well you've got to say that climate change and the extreme temperatures that the scientists are telling us climate change is bringing us an example of which we have now had with snow on the beach in Calveston, Texas, if you can believe that. As how, how does that risk compare to the risk of an invasion by Iran, for example? Or even, even a, a shooting war with North Korea or China and horrific those would be, but what is the the real likelihood of those? The likelihood is so much greater. And and one of the problems you have in doing anything about the balance of the federal budget, how much goes into the Pentagon and into the Department of Energy's black budget, which is also war stuff, 
is because the military-industrial complex has been so good at citing producers of goods and services for the war machine in 435 congressional districts that there is a, an economic juggernaut that says don't touch the defense budget. But So what has to happen if we're going to ever address that? What has to happen is that you have to have that federal money going someplace else that also produces economic benefit for those 435 congressional districts. And where is one opportunity? Well, one opportunity surely is addressing the need to adapt the energy infrastructure to the fact of temperature extremes that we're going to be dealing with for the next maybe forever. That's going to be expensive. Opportunity. So, so if you could take money away from building a tank, which once the tank is built doesn't produce any wealth, all it does is drain wealth, to putting wires underground or to strengthening the overhead wires. And by the way, an interesting factoid, one half inch of ice on the typical electricity line, 500 pounds. So you you need really pretty strong above ground lines or buried lines. All of the other things, the in Texas, so you would be weatherizing all of the facilities so you wouldn't have all of the iced-up facilities shutting down simply because they weren't designed. You spend the money for that. You have the jobs that go with that, all of that. If you then did the same thing with transportation and recognized that, for example, you could you could start building subways in every American city of over a quarter million folks spend a whole lot of money and take that money out of the Pentagon because the the need for that is, is so much greater than the marginal effect of maybe a third of, or even a half of the Pentagon budget. There is an opportunity there. But that is not going to happen as long as as long as uh, member people who are running for the legislature, either in the state or in the nation, are looking to to folks who own 83% of the stock. Here, here's what I would say about the debate, and I do think that debate is now more relevant. It has been kind of, that, that you know, Neil Goldschmidt was, uh, the, well, I, we can leave Neil out of some of it, but, but well, that a lot of his political mechanism was built. I mean, there's been a significant revolving door. A lot of the power structure of uh, Portland was built through uh, energy companies. You look at uh, Northwest Natural Gas, Pacific Power, and PGE, the number of people who worked in, worked for city government, number of people who worked for a member of Congress, uh, yeah, from Hatfield to Wyden to, uh, to DeFazio, et cetera, who are now installed in the in the power companies? There's significant overlap, and they 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 sort of won the they won the fight, right? There was a little bit 
uh, Eric Sten was uh, and Tom Potter was looking at during the Enron crisis uh, was looking at it a little bit and then they they started coming after started coming after Eric Sten and he moved out of town uh, and we'll never know why I suspect but the uh, but when I but I think that debate is coming back I think debate about how should we manage electricity and here's the challenge the challenge with government is that government can have, and it's myriad, but the challenge of government is it can have unshared objectives, money. The money provides great clarity. An organization can be very focused if it everybody shares that its number one objective is money. Uh, might disagree with any number of things, but at least you have a shared objective. There could be an arbitrariness uh, when you're dealing with a government institution where objectives can be different can vary from person to person, from administration to administration, from member of the deep state to another member of the deep state. Uh, also, you have issues of bureaucracy, and that means that, to quote one of the founders of the, uh, of the Peace Corps, he said, bureaucracies can occasionally turn a crank, but if you really want to make things happen, you avoid bureaucracy, you need to create initiatives. And government can have a harder time creating initiatives when you have ensconced workers whose job is to turn that crank and who don't get an obvious benefit from doing something new. So government has its endemic weaknesses. One of the major weaknesses that the private sector has is that when you have your shared objective just being near-term profits, that something like long-term infrastructural investment kind of makes no sense. Like it just seems like, like why would we do that? Why would it, unless there's a way that we know we're even R&D investment is why the NIH is important. It's why would we do that? Now, I get it. If we have 20 year patent protection for our drug, then we can put a couple billion dollars in drug development. And then we've got, you know, somewhere between eight and 20 years left, probably between, you know, seven and 12 years left to try to make profit on this patented item. But it is an irrational thing. If you're if you're PGE, Pacific Core, Pacific Power, Northwest Natural Gas, and you want, you know, you'll all, the rationality of it, well, you'll want to still have those customers, but nonetheless, it's a hard thing to convince these and to take our local companies, there's so many people who work there who are friends of ours, and, and, they, and they're sponsored, basically every nonprofit sponsors of every, uh, every media organization in the state, right? It's, it's sort of a challenging thing even to question any of it, but it's such a hard thing to, to say, okay, we're going to invest this much in long-term infrastructure. Uh, and then, you know, they, they'll go before the board and they can do that. But it is, there is a case to be made that the public entity does a better job. For instance, look at the big pipe. You know, some politician will get hit over it, but then they'll get, they'll get voted out of office eventually, or they'll hit term limits, or they'll just retire, but the companies live forever. Anyway, we've dealt a lot more time on that than I expected. That we've got to. Uh, well, I, go ahead. I, I would just invite people to compare the history of the Tennessee Valley Authority, or the Bonneville Power Administration, or the Rural Electrification Program. Compare that with Enron, or the the big utilities in California, or the entire. Uh, energy structure in Texas, compare those and say, whoa, you know, uh, 
that that suggests that maybe public power isn't such a bad idea. And and a when you compare the history of Oregon and Washington, subsequent to the creation of the Bonneville Power Administration, and you see how how much more powerful an, an economic engine Washington became as compared to Oregon, one of the principal reasons was that Washington chose to grasp the benefits of BPA with public power everywhere, Seattle, Tacoma, etc. And Oregon, very, very few. Eugene was, was just really, really the only significant one. Oregon went with public, with private power. What was the difference? Well, the difference was in several, several cents per kilowatt hour, which made it much more attractive for business to invest in the future in Washington than in Oregon. That we should talk about the new statue that is up on Mount Tabor. Have you seen York? York. I haven't seen it, but I've read about it. I think it's wonderful. Tell us, tell everybody about it. Well, we're going to go there. We're going to go check it out. The old statue was of the former, uh, was of the former, one of the former editors of the Oregonian who was a uh, a, a racist. Uh, yeah, and a noted, a noted uh, op- opponent to, and one of the main reasons why it took so many times to pass women's suffrage in Oregon. And that statue toppled and disappeared uh, during the uh, racial justice protests. And we've got to give it up, Dad. You, with, with, with the right hand, give it. The left hand, taketh away. I think you got to do some, I think you got to give some, giveth, not just some taken, taketh away. Because for all of the critiques of protests that included, and not to paint everybody with any common brush, but that included damaging of things in town, including things that didn't need to be damaged. Uh, it is this is an I, this is an example of constructive activism, of creative activism, and yeah, it was kind of inspiring. Kind of makes you love to be a Portlander. And so, p- folks should understand who York was. Uh, you want to tell them? York was the only uh, the only black uh, human being that was part of the Corps of Discovery, part of the Lewis and Clark expedition. He was he was a slave who did not whose whose request for freedom after the expedition was not was turned granted. down. Yeah, so bad. Yeah, and it was, uh, but now will be ensconced as and, and Carmen Rubio came out. You know, elections matter. Carmen Rubio, head of the Parks Department. As a uh, uh, as a new city councilor, and and by the way, one of the things is people are debating re- redoing the city, the former government in Portland, right? Which I now think is going to have it has enough momentum. It's, it seems like it's kind of hard to stop. But one of the things that happens is, is if all you had if all you had were bureaucrats, okay? If you if we if because again, the leading proposals move to city manager where you won't have bureaus who are ultimately overseen by an elected city councilor. You'll have a city manager who is who has a significant layer of protection uh, away from any public input. Now, there could be benefits to that. One disadvantageous thing is I have to imagine there's some rule about putting up statues in the park. 
<laughs> you can't just go and put up a statue of the park. I have to imagine if I were to read the city code on park statues, there would have been something about getting some approval before you put up a permanent structure in a park. But you've got Carmen Rubio, an elected official, who is now the head of the parks department. And who says, go for it. Who's like, yeah, this is pretty great. And so the parks department says, okay, sounds pretty great. And now we're like, yeah, that sounds pretty great. Because she has the sense to recognize that this is that, that anybody, anybody with any racial justice courage would think this is cool. Anybody with any artistic sense would say this is cool. It's a better statue. It's a better piece of art. Uh, and so I am. Uh, it's, it's just a little window into one of the there's pros and cons. And I, I tend to think that there, it's a somewhat close question. But that the uh, but what one of the pros of having a city councilor who runs a bureau is that they have a little bit of freedom from the rules uh, because, you know, it's a little bit different of a thing that we should also we should also talk about or at least acknowledge that Ann Aiken uh, over the weekend turned down Diego Hernandez's request for yep. inter- so, intervention. So tomorrow, so tomorrow there is not going to be what would almost certainly be the first time the Oregon legislature expelled one of its members because Representative Hernandez has decided to throw in the towel. Uh, he announced yesterday that he was uh, that he was resigning uh, after the day before that uh, federal judge Ann Aiken. So th- the litany of events was after uh, after complaints in the legislature, uh, and then after the, there started to be a cry for his uh, for his ouster, he filed a lawsuit in Marion County, uh, and then the Department of Justice in Oregon uh, moved to have that removed to federal court, and it was moved to federal court. And Ann Aiken reviewed it and reviewed it just before the vote, as you said, Dad, that was scheduled for tomorrow. Uh, And she uh, declined to hear a lawsuit on the matter, said no, there's no, she dismissed the case. And now uh, seeing the the likely result, uh, Diego Diego Hernandez has now uh, announced that he will not be a member of the legislature anymore. the uh, other parks news, parks and rec budget is going to restore summer programming. Commissioner Carmen Rubio, uh, they approved an interfund loan to let parks and rec access funds in the parks levy passed by voters in November. Normally those wouldn't have come online until November of this year, but they want to transition the model now because uh, they want to advance racial equity and eliminate the cost barrier for Portlanders who need parks programming the most. They're going to continue the free lunch to play program to distribute free meals and art in parks, outdoor day camps, environmental education, jobs, volunteer opportunities, outdoor art centers, community centers, swimming pools, and more. Dad, any other local news before we do a straw on the wind? Yeah, I like. I think it's worth mentioning that starting the 28th of May to the 24th of September, you're going to need a permit for several trails inside the wilderness areas, Mount Jefferson Sisters and Mount Washington. That's something for backpackers to be aware of. Backpackers, well, uh, overnighters, six bucks a day, uh, just a day hike, one dollar a day. Uh, I think it's worth mentioning, I just like to warn people, I don't know how many of our listeners would be tempted to make a contribution to one of these fundraising things from sheriff organizations, organizational columns of sheriffs. But if you get a call 
from an organization saying it's some kind of a sheriff thing, or you see on your on your computer an invitation to contribute, beware because they are almost certainly scams. Do not do that. And while we're talking about police, I'd like to compliment the Gearhart Police Chief Jeff Bowman, who has said we're not going to send cops out as the first responders on mental cases anymore. We've got to do better than that. And then also while we're talking about state and local, it might be worth mentioning that a poll just released by DHM pollsters, 63% of Oregonians say that they would like to pump their own gas. That's a that that could transplants. Bunch of transplants. All these people moving to Oregon. You make me pump my own gas. I like not pumping my own gas. I like it. it's rainy. It's cold out there. That guy needs a job. It's not always a guy, but that person needs a job. I don't know, man. Bunch of transplants. I want to say happy birthday to Anthony Deloney, dear friend, ally, spiritual founder. Well, I mean founder and and spiritual leader of the numbers, the radio station. Wonderful guy. Uh, if you've got other things you want us to mention before we run away, the text line is 971-220-5979, Dad, yeah, we've got uh, uh, Oregonians are on track to continue our decline in COVID case counts, which is a good thing. The, uh, uh, there is, the Apple store has reopened, and there's a Gucci store downtown. And here's the last thing I want to say before we start on the way. There was this debate. You know, this like, like oh, it's Portland dying. Is Portland going to go the? Is Portland going to go the way to Detroit? We're going to everybody's going to abandon downtown. Uh, uh-uh. I got a different prediction. I want to quote Harold Goldstein. Harold Goldstein, longtime businessman, his friend, previous X-ray supporter, who he said, I think all, when when all of his and he always lives in the fancy part of town, and and he said all his and all his rich friends were all lamenting and bemoaning what was going to happen to Portland. Everybody's going to move away. Nobody's going to want to live here. He's like, no, you're, no, you're, you got it, you got it backwards. It's great. It's gonna, what? It's gonna attract all the people who care about racial justice. It's gonna care about all the people who want democracy to make people stronger together. It's gonna care. It's gonna attract people with creativity and an urge to disrupt. It's gonna attract new kinds of genius. It's gonna make this more of the town we hope that it will be. Just you watch. That was his bet. That was his bet, bet six months ago, and. Over the last couple of weeks, there were, you know, Nigel Jacobs wrote an article. No, it's going to be like Pompeii. No, it's going to be like Detroit. Like that was the big, that was the big thrust. Well, now there's a story. Oh, I guess the real problem. There's still people moving to Portland. There's a bunch of people moving to Portland, and now the problem is they're not going to have enough housing because housing starts are low. New construction is down. I'm telling you, there are too many great people in Portland. For the people who are scared of protests, when they leave, that doesn't mean Portland is over. And I don't think we should be trashing downtown all the time. I think protests should be policing themselves. Protests should be generating the kind of energy that they want to see in the world and should be build. We should all be building movements that build moral authority and have people not only want to join, but also listen to and believe and follow those movements. I have that view to be sure. But but know that what ma- makes Portland great is not its straight lacedness, but its weirdness is its willingness to be courageous in the face of oppression its willingness to be creative in the in the face of dullness its willingness to try to emit a community-wide barbaric yawp in desire for a better community that's who this town is and 
the when that when this town manifests that it will not make us weaker over time it'll make us stronger that's not to say we we do need to clean up downtown we do need to make sure that we have the kind of retail businesses that work and that amazon doesn't run every darn thing but i at least wanted to say that dad i think it's time for a straw in the wind I have three straws in the wind. A straw in the wind. And the first one relevant to what you were just talking about is the Apple Store downtown, after nine months of being closed, is opening today. Other straws in the wind. A Russian liquid national gas carrier ship has been, the Christopher de Morgerie, managed to cross the Arctic Ocean in February without an icebreaker. That is a frightening straw in the wind. Encouraging straw in the wind, in my view, the UK has told Uber that its drivers are employees, not independent contractors. That's a big straw in the wind. February 14th, which you and I haven't had a show since then, Happy birthday, Oregon. Also, happy birthday to Labor Day. Yesterday was the first, Oregon became the very first state to publicly recognize, to ensconce in law, recognition of Labor Day, one of the many Oregon firsts. We'll be right back. We're going to be back with Erica Morehouse. Pop, I love you. We did it one more time. And we'll be back on Thursday. 